This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. If you've been in the crypto space since 2013, you probably have a few horror stories to share, plus more than a few moments of sheer exhilaration. It's been a roller coaster ride of note. Our next guest, Ran Noina, is one of those. He got his first taste of crypto back in 2013, and he's been hooked ever since. He's the host of CNBC's Crypto Trader Slot, which airs every Thursday evening at 8.30 p.m., and he also has a live stream cryptocurrency talk show called Crypto Banter on YouTube. The show airs twice daily from Monday to Friday at 6.30 a.m. and 10 a.m., and I think that's Eastern Standard Time. We'll find out in a minute. Within five months of being on air, the, the channel skyrocketed to being the top three cryptocurrency channels, or one of them, globally, and it shows no signs of slowing down. Ever before getting involved in cryptos in 2001, Rand founded the Creative Council, South Africa's leading activations agency with annual turnover of $150 million. And it was sold to Publicist Group in the largest media transaction on the African continent. Hi, Ran. It's good to have you on. Been meaning to contact you for some time, but at last we've made contact. And I wanted to get you on MoneyWeb Crypto to pick your brains on a few burning issues. And if it's okay, we'll rattle them off. So, I mean, first of all, thank you. What a what a great intro. I mean, I want to hire you as my publicist with that kind with that with that, <laughs> kind, with that kind of intro. Well, okay. Tell us how you got started in crypto for a start. So it's actually quite an interesting story because I had a friend of mine who was always an early adopter of technology. You know, like every group of friends has that one guy that's like the, the early adopter of technology. And he told us, we went on, on holiday, it was actually 2014, and he said, I'm buying this magic internet money, this digital internet money, and it keeps going up in value. And I was like, oh God, magic internet money. I mean, you know, what what is magic internet money? But anyway, because of my... Um, Gambler personality, because of the fact that I love the adrenaline, I, I bought some of this magic internet money, which is uh, obviously Bitcoin. And um, the rest is history. I mean, I went down the rabbit hole because, you know, they say the best way to learn about something is to buy it. Because if the price goes up, you're going to want to know what you bought. And if the price goes down, you're also going to want to know what you bought. So I bought Bitcoin and ever since 2014, late 2014, I've been uh, all in and hooked on Bitcoin. So you bought your first Bitcoin in 2014, was it? It was December 2014, yeah. And and what price? Do you remember what price you bought your first one at? I, I don't remember. I think it was somewhere around 500 or $600, somewhere around there. But I, don't quote me. It was many years ago. So yeah, okay. I kind of know that we were buying at the range of between 500 and 1,000 for, for a long time. I mean, if you think about Bitcoin, I mean, it only broke 1,000. I can't remember exact dates, but somewhere near 2016, I think it probably only broke 1,000. Yes, I think you're right. So, did you um, did you hold, or did you you know when you when you reached 100% profit, did you say you know this is too good to be true, I'm out, or, or did you hold on? Uh, what What do you think? I, I listen. A lot of people that I've spoken to who got in early days, and you know they couldn't believe their luck, and they sold at least some of it. I'll tell you the story. The story is, I bought a whole lot of Bitcoin back in the day, and I kept buying it. The more I learned about it, the more I kept buying it. But then, you know, in 2017, there was this altcoin season. And in order to fund my altcoin purchases, obviously what I had to do was sell some of my Bitcoin because I didn't want to put more money into the, the crypto ecosystem. Because at the time, crypto was very, very, very speculative. And because it was so speculative, um, I only allowed a very small part of my net worth or my income to be in Bitcoin. And I kind of made a rule with myself that I wouldn't allow 
for more of my my assets to be in Bitcoin. So if I wanted to speculate on other crypto assets, it would need to be from the same pocket as uh, my Bitcoin. And interestingly enough, uh, my first son was born on the 16th of December 2015, which was a year after I bought my first Bitcoin. And, um, you know, we you have your first son, you start feeling responsible for something. And the first thing you think about is how am I going to fund the rest of his life? And so what I did in on the 16th of December 2015, I came home from the hospital having just met my son and I bought him a certain amount of Bitcoin, which I put onto a wallet and I've never touched that wallet ever again since. And the irony is that I keep comparing my Bitcoin stash to his Bitcoin stash, which he knows nothing about yet, obviously. And because he held Bitcoin, he's done better than me. So that, that's the story. <laughs> All right. So I, I, I guess that does answer the question. You cycled out some of your Bitcoin, but your son. He's uh, a hodler. He's, he's a real He's a, real he's a hodler. He's been holding in there since 2015, and he's going to thank you uh, tremendously when you know he comes of age and he can actually use that. The idea is not to tell him until he turns 18. And when he turns 18, either he'll be a billionaire or he won't even know he, or, or he'll never, ever know that it happened. That's kind of like the, the idea. It'll be a wonderful surprise, one way or the other. So you said you, you, you cycled out of some of your Bitcoin into altcoins. Um, can you give us an idea of your portfolio? Uh, Look, my portfolio was developed over years of experience in the crypto space and learning a lot. Um, and I guess you only learn a lot when you make mistakes. You, you don't learn from successes. You only learn when you make mistakes in life. And I mean, I'm the first one to say that in 2017, I made a hell of a lot of money in 2017. I mean, so much money that I, the, the, if you take the, the amount of money that I made selling my company, the Creative Council, which was a huge acquisition, I doubled that money in crypto in just a couple of months in 2017. But when the bear market happened, I lost it all again. And so I had, I have very, I had very little to show for the 2017 bull market. But it was great training for the bull market, which we've just experienced, because I learned a whole lot of very, very difficult lessons. And so now I'm, I'm much more disciplined. My trading, my investing style, my trading style is much, much, much more disciplined. Clearly, I'm obviously still making mistakes. I think every investor makes mistakes. But I think I've really traded this one. I'm going to say perfectly, but I'm going to say very, very well and especially relative to my experience in 2017. So would it be safe to say that you, you're still not a hodler? You're, you're actually trading, actively trading the market? So I don't, I don't trade. I don't look for trading opportunities. I'm a very bad trader because I think traders, when, if you want to be a crypto trader specifically, it means that you have to have your eyes on the screen 24-7 because crypto moves 24-7. It moves really, really fast. Uh, unlike normal markets, news travels much faster in crypto. And because, because of the nature of the market, because it's so global and you've got everybody around the globe incentivized to find the news on these internationally traded assets at the same time, crypto is a much more reactive market than normal stock markets. And so I find that there are people who are very good at trading and charting and they make a lot of money. I'm not that guy. I have a very simple investment philosophy. Um, it's an investment philosophy which I've nurtured over many, many years in many, many markets. And the philosophy is a very simple one. It says, invest in protocols that are going to change the world and then sit back and give them enough time to actually do their thing. And that's really how I make all my investment decisions. So the first question that I ask is, is this protocol instrumental in changing the world? Do I believe 
with all the knowledge that I've got that this protocol is going to change the world? If the answer is yes, then I buy it and then I, and I hold it. And as it shows more signs of changing the world as I expected, I usually top up my position and keep buying. And I very, very rarely sell my positions unless it's, unless it's just to cover my capital, which I put in. So a normal take profit strategy, which says, you know, if the token goes up a certain value, take your initial capital out so that you can invest it in something else. But otherwise, I'm very much a long-term holder. And I usually only sell tokens when something fundamental happens to the market or to the token, which invalidates my original investment thesis. Interesting. So um, give us an idea of some of the altcoins. Bitcoin, we, we know about, but some of the altcoins that uh, you have in your portfolio, I, I guess the usual Ethereum, Cardano, XRP, that kind of so, thing. Yeah, I'll give you the, the, the principle. So if, if you think about what a blockchain investment actually is, if you think about like if you zoom out, you say, okay, when you're investing in any kind of blockchain investment, be it Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, or any of the applications which are built on top of those uh, blockchain layers, you're really only investing in one thing, which is network effects. And for the listeners who are not that familiar with network effects, I can break it down for you in a very simple way. Network effects means that if there is a network and every additional user to the network adds value to the network, uh, then you can deem that the network has network effects. And I'll give you a very good South African example, which is WhatsApp. So I think we can all agree that WhatsApp is not the best chat program in the world. But if you need to chat to people, probably the, the best place that you're going to reach them is on WhatsApp. And so if a new user is coming into the market and he has to decide which chat app to download on his phone, and we'll use, for example, WeChat versus WhatsApp, he's naturally going to sway towards WhatsApp, and that is because more people are using WhatsApp. Now, when that person joins WhatsApp, he actually grows the network in such a way that more people can phone him and more people can message him as well. And so what you're saying is that every time that a user joins the network, he adds value to the network. And because he adds value to the network, more people will naturally gravitate to that network. So every user, it's, it's, it's defined by Metcalf's law, which says that the value of a network grows exponentially with each new person that joins that network. So right. how do I apply that to investing? Well, if you think about investing in WhatsApp or in Facebook or in Google, all of those companies have the network effect. And every time that we do a Google search, it makes the Google algorithm better. And therefore, more people will search on Google because Google has better search results. And as more people search on Google, so the algorithm becomes better. And so it becomes a, a virtuous cycle. And the same thing with WhatsApp and the same thing with Instagram and the same thing with Facebook. I mean, if you think about Instagram, if you want to join a social network and you're faced with Instagram or a competitor, more naturally, you will sway towards Instagram because more people are on it. But the minute that you join and you start posting photos and stories, you actually add value to the network. So when the next user has faced the same decision, that network is more valuable. That's what you call network effects. And it's the most powerful um, effect in the world. In fact, it's so powerful that once a company or a protocol has network effects, there are only really three things that can stop it. So if you think about companies like YouTube, which have network effects, or, or Instagram, or WhatsApp, or Uber, they all have network effects. Now, there's only three things that can stop something that has the network effect. 
First thing is government intervention. So if the government comes in and says, you are prohibited from operating in my uh, jurisdiction, that could stop network effects. The second thing is a technological failure. So if you think about Instagram, if Instagram's technology failed and couldn't be fixed, then it would be stopped. The third thing is a competitor that's 10 times better. And if there is a competitor that's 10 times better, that competitor has a very, very, very small chance of infiltrating the market. Those are the only three things that can stop a company or a protocol that has network effects, nothing else. And so you know that when you're investing in a company or a network that has network effects, your investment is pretty safe unless one of those three things happen. So when you think about blockchain and you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a money or a store of value network. It's working as a store of value and it has network effects. How do I know it has network effects? Well, I've watched the growth in Bitcoin. And if anybody is faced with the choice of choosing a digital store of value and they ask, should I invest in Bitcoin or some new competitor? The answer is naturally to invest in Bitcoin. And as they do, they create a new user on the Bitcoin network, a new person that you can transact with on the Bitcoin network. And therefore, they've just added more value to the Bitcoin network. And so for me, Whenever I'm investing in any blockchain protocol, the only, the single thing that I'm looking for is, is this protocol, uh, does the protocol have network effects or is the protocol, does the protocol have a high likelihood of gaining network effects? And that's how I make my investment decisions. I should probably also point out, you, you're a CFA, right? A, a chartered yeah, yeah, financial analyst as well. So you, you do approach this with uh, the eye of the the analyst or the fund manager, which is quite interesting. And I think just to add on Metcalf's law, so Bitcoin is is actually tracking with Metcalf's law exactly as predicted. Uh, there are about 100 million people who own, about 105 million people who own Bitcoin around the world at, at the moment, and that changes, goes up and down a bit, but that's kind of where it is. Um, it's only about 1% or 1.3% of the world's population, which means that the, the potential for, for growth and for as, as each new person becomes a Bitcoin holder or hodler, um, that, that network effect then starts to accelerate and adds more value to Bitcoin itself. So it, it's a very interesting debate, just uh, looking at the, the network effects of, of Bitcoin. It's normally, Metcalfe's law is normally being applied to telecommunications companies and it's a way that you could value them. But it's a very interesting exercise to look at it in terms of Bitcoin, which is obviously what you've done. Yeah, so network effects are actually governed by two laws. The first, and, and, and you, you're right, the, probably the, the most relevant modern world example of networks is telecommunications networks. Um, and I think that that's where you think about the value of the network increasing with one user. And I'll give you a very good example for the, for the listeners. Say that there's only Run and Kiran, then the total number of phone calls that can be made in the network is two, because I can call you and you can call me, and there's no one else, there's no other net calls that the network can make. The minute that we introduce a third person, and we call that person Fred, and we say, okay, now there's three of us in the network, what is the number of calls that can happen in the network? Well, I can call you, you can call me. I can call Fred, Fred can call me. You can call Fred, Fred can call you. And so you, what you're realizing is the number of calls in the network increases exponentially with each additional user. And that's exactly what's happening with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has 100 million users, 
But if you look at the rate at which new users are joining the network, the rate at which new users are joining the network is higher than it's ever been. That means that more people, not only are more people joining the network, but they're joining the network, the network faster than ever before. And that's what, why you realize that Bitcoin truly, truly, truly has network effects. So if you ask me, the likelihood or the probability of Bitcoin failing at this point is very close to zero. And therefore, you know, I said to you that in 2017 and 2016, before Bitcoin had network effects, I was reluctant to put a lot of my wealth into Bitcoin. But today, knowing what I know and knowing that having studied network effects, uh, I mean, I, I went to Harvard and one of the modules, one of the, the, the courses we did was specifically on network effects. Now that I've studied everything about network effects and I've validated it with the data, for me, Bitcoin becomes a very, very, very low risk asset. And therefore, I'm willing to allocate a lot more of my portfolio to it. Okay, just to move on a little bit here, I, I wanted to talk to you, first of all, the, the extraordinary rate of uh, production that you that you managed to get out. You're doing two podcasts a day. You're doing a, a program on CNBC every week. How do you manage that? Okay, so the in 2017, I approached CNBC and I said, look, there's this new asset class. It's called crypto and Bitcoin, and you guys should be covering it. And they said, look, we're not covering it. It's not something that's part of our agenda. It could be a scam. Anyway, I, stay, I, I sat on them for a while, and eventually in August 2017, they allowed for a crypto show, which became the best, most highly watched show uh, on CNBC. It was a weekly show. It was aired every Thursday at 8.30 p.m., and we specifically did it quite late because we found that our viewers were mainly in the U.S., and that you know 8.30 in Los Angeles is, is, is quite early in the morning. Um, then when lockdown happened, we took a production break on CNBC and we haven't actually brought the show back since the production break. And I've spent my time and energy building a new media station, which is going to be a 24-7, 365 streaming crypto uh, uh, station. And the idea is to say right now, if you think about crypto, there's no CNBC or Bloomberg. So if you want to know what's going on in the crypto market, there's no channel that you can just switch on and say, hey, if I press this button, then I'm going to know exactly what's happening on the crypto markets. Whereas if you think about traditional financial markets, you know, if you want to know what's going on in the markets, you press a button and you get to CNBC and within half an hour, you know exactly what's happening on the markets. Or you go into Bloomberg and within an hour, you know exactly what's happening on the markets. There's nothing like that for crypto. And that's the gap that I'm trying to fill at the moment. So we're building a 24-7, 365 streaming crypto media station. And we're supporting it with a very strong website, which is strong with research and, uh, and uh, news and views and opinions uh, around crypto and crypto assets. So that's what we're building. And currently, we're doing two hours of programming a day. Uh, from next week, I think we'll go to three or four hours of programming a day. And I'm aiming by the end of July or August to be on eight hours of programming a day. Um, that's, that's where we're aiming towards. But we're, we're building it with a vision. What you talk about and what you see is you see the end result, which seems like it's just two hours of programming a day. But the reality is that that's just the beginning of a big vision of actually creating a parallel to CNBC and Bloomberg uh, in the crypto universe alone. And this, of course, is something which has global appeal. This is not just aimed at the South African market. Yeah. So we, I mean, we're based in South Africa. We are a very small part of our market is in South Africa. 2% of our market is in South Africa. 
Uh, 30% of our market is in the US, uh, 15% of our market or 16% of our market is in the UK, uh, and then probably another 10% is in the rest of Europe. Um, so we're, we're a global business. Crypto is a global business. We don't see ourselves ourselves as a South African business, but it's very comfortable to be positioned in South Africa because we get a head start on all our competitors. And that's a very, I've just come back from the US. In fact, you're speaking to me. I literally landed from the airport and came straight onto, this, on, onto the stream. But the one, the major takeout that I got from being in the States was that we have a competitive, a competitive advantage in that they're still sleeping while we're sourcing the early morning news. So because we wake up before them, we get a head start on them in terms of what the early morning news is for them. So we're the first, we're the first channel in the world, actually, to, to address the American market. Our first show is at, I think, 6 a.m. And our second show is at 10 a.m. New York time. And that's the first time in the morning that we're the first uh, of the top five or top six crypto channels in the world that actually broadcast um, that broadcast to the American market. So we have a, a very, very, very good competitive advantage in that we start doing work earlier than them. It's very brave what you're doing, but of course it requires logistics as well because you've got to have people who's do, you're doing the research, you're doing the presenting, the production, the, the whole background, even just you know podcasting whether we do it money where that requires a team. So it's costly, and if you're going to go you know 24/7, you're looking at some major major expenses. Are you funding this all yourself, or you got big backers? So I'm, I'm funding it all myself. Um, you're right; it's a massive operation. We have producers uh, for every show. Uh, we have a team of researchers. We have 12 researchers or analysts which do token dives and, you know, look at the market for us all day long. We have uh, traders who point out charts for us. We've got presenters. We've got social media managers. So we're building it. In our view, we're taking on Bloom. Not taking on because we're running a parallel universe, but we're going to compete with the likes of CNBC and Bloomberg. And you don't do that by just sitting in front of a camera. You do that by backing up every single thing that you do with with great news, uh, with research reports. Um, we have a legal team which looks at, make sure we don't, we're not, you know, crypto is a gray area. And because you're talking about multiple jurisdictions, there's certain things that you can and can't say, and there's certain things that you can and can't do. So the way we see it, we are building a, a global competitor to Bloomberg and CNBC. Um, and to do that, we're building it with very, very, very strong foundations. We'd rather be slower to market, even though, we have had incredible success beyond any of our expectations. I mean, in six months, we became the third biggest crypto channel in the world. We, we picked up 350,000 subscribers on YouTube and over a million subscribers to all our social media channels, and that's in, in six months. But that doesn't really excite us because what we're looking for is we're looking, for, we're looking to build a business that's going to be around in five or ten years. Uh, and so we're building, I'm much more worried about the foundations and making sure that we have the right ethics. Um, the right, you know, the, the right credibility in the market, uh, the right rules, because we were operating across multiple jurisdictions um, and building a, a, a shit hot team that can compete with the best in the world. That's where more where we're positioning this than, hey, this stream that's supposed to get as many views as possible. One of the interesting metrics that is used by analysts is how many Google searches there are for Bitcoin. And... If you go back to 2017 and the last bull market that spiked up there, it, it, it was huge. But now, you know, the, the range has been consistently high. If, if you look at uh, what's happened in the last two to three years, 
Uh, yes, there's been a bit of a drop off in, in the last couple of months, but the, the amount of interest in Bitcoin is there. And so that kind of tells me you're on the right path that, you know, you providing 24 seven content around crypto, because this is, this is something new. And I think you've got the early mover advantage. Uh, I think it's, I think it's brave, as I said before, but I think it's also, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty smart move. And, um, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's not an easy job. There's so much happening in the crypto space. There are more than 5,000 coins. You know, which ones do you put your attention on? Which ones do you ignore? Um, and I think the other thing that is happening is the quality of research is getting better and better. You've got some really, really smart people uh, researching around this area. And I'm sure that's what you're going to be taking advantage of. Yeah, so you mentioned that you know, the, 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 there was a big spike for the term Bitcoin on Google in 2016, 2017. Uh, that carried on. And then obviously it dropped because interest waned because as, as the prices drop, so does the interest drop. And we're seeing that again now. Um, but ultimately what we look at is cumulative interest. So we're not looking at the spikes, but we're looking at cumulatively how many people have searched Bitcoin. Because ultimately, if you think about someone who has searched Bitcoin in 2017, that person is one person that already knows what Bitcoin is and probably won't search it again. Interestingly, uh, if you look at things like Dogecoin and you look at things like Ethereum, they've all had their time in the sun of late uh, with the Google search terms. So I guess that we're addressing a very big asset class, like you say, with 10, 15, 20,000 coins. I mean, I don't know how many, how many coins there are. We're at the beginning because you can see that the money is just flowing from major institutions to Bitcoin. And if you think about the South African market, I'm not really familiar with any institution that's actually dipped their toes formally into Bitcoin yet. And that South Africa is just one country. So we're, we're addressing a, a very small market. We're, doing, we're looking at three things. We're looking at uh, live streaming. We're looking at a very strong web resource. And the last one, which we're launching on the 1st of August, is Crypto School. And Crypto School is a free online school where people can come in and actually graduate. We have three modules in Crypto School. The first one is uh, Crypto for Beginners. And that's really the beginner, beginning, beginner. What is Bitcoin? What is money? How does Bitcoin compare to gold? What is an exchange? How do I buy Bitcoin? How do I sell? It's really, really, really basic stuff. The second one is more around making money in crypto. In other words, staking, buying, uh, uh, trading crypto. And the third vertical is crypto for institutions. And that is um, teaching institutions how to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment safely, where they can store it how to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, how to account for it from an accounting and tax point of view. So those are the three verticals. The first vertical is launching on the 1st of August, and then from there, the rest of them will launch. But that's the, that's the direction which we've decided to go in. Okay, I've got a few other questions I want to rattle off here. They're fascinating Take stuff. Your time. And, uh, Take your time. We, we, Take your time. We will definitely have to explore some of these. I mean, these re require podcasts on their own, some of them, particularly the educational side that you just mentioned. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is people have noticed that Bitcoin prices and crypto prices generally are down over the last couple of months. Is this a crypto winter or just a passing chill? And what does history tell us about the current state of the Bitcoin cycle? Well, you, you say crypto prices are down and the market sentiment is that crypto prices are down. But down from when? Down from two months ago? Yeah. OK. Yes, they are down. Bitcoin is down from 64,000 two months ago to 33,000 arguably uh, uh, today. So yes, Bitcoin is down in the last two months, but Bitcoin is also up about 3X or 300% for the year. Um, so Bitcoin is actually up and Bitcoin is up 10X 
since March 23rd last year. So it just depends what time frame you're looking at. Is this going to be a crypto winter? I don't think it's going to be a long crypto winter, you know, a 12 month or an 18 month crypto winter. I think it's probably a, another couple of months. I think that you need to analyze what the reason is for this crypto winter. And there is a certain indicator that no one is looking at, but actually explains exactly why the Bitcoin prices and the crypto prices are down. Because if you zoom out and you look at the reason why crypto prices went up in the first place, it is because on the 23rd of March last year, all markets, equity markets were at an all-time low uh, or at a low, a recent low. Bitcoin was at a recent low, and that's because COVID hit. And then the government started to print money uncontrollably. And with that, people started to flock to assets to try and protect their money. They were scared of, uh, of, um, of losing their money to, to inflation, which, which, which is what's, what was going to happen. And so people started to flock into assets. And in particular, they flocked into gold, the stock markets. And then this narrative of, hold on, Bitcoin is a digital gold, uh, came into the limelight. And how are these people, these institutions, the Wall Street institutions, bear in mind that they couldn't buy Bitcoin as Bitcoin because their mandates wouldn't let them invest in digital assets. They had nowhere to store these digital assets. They had no idea how to insure these digital assets. So what they did was they bought into a share called GBTC, which is Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust. And effectively what Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust is, it's a trust which only buys Bitcoin. It just buys Bitcoin. It buys one asset. That asset is Bitcoin. And it gives people shares in the trust. And it never, ever sells the Bitcoin in the trust document. It doesn't allow for the sale of Bitcoin. So between March last year and April this year, everybody, institutions, pension funds, retail investors, accredited investors, all bought these GBTC shares because that was the exposure to Bitcoin. They bought so many of these GBTC shares that GBTC became the biggest buyer of Bitcoin in the market. They bought 640,000 Bitcoin, which is, I think, about $25 billion worth of Bitcoin. The problem is that when the demand for this GBTC ran out, because the trust cannot sell Bitcoin, the trust doesn't have a mandate to sell Bitcoin, the shares of the trust are now selling at a discount to net asset value. And so what that means is that if you're an investor and you say, should I buy Bitcoin? You've got two options. You can either buy Bitcoin and pay the full price, or you can buy the shares in the GBTC trust. And today their shares are trading at a discount to net asset value of 15%. Which one would you buy? You would buy the Bitcoin at 15% less. And that's what's happening in the market right now. There's an overhang. There's too many of these GBTC shares from investors that wanted to sell, uh, from investors that bought during the good periods. And now instead of people buying Bitcoin on the open market, they can just buy GBTC shares. And so all the demand for Bitcoin is being absorbed by these GBTC shares. So no one is buying Bitcoin on the market. So then naturally, the Bitcoin price is coming down. And that's what's happening. Now, very soon, it could take a month, it could take two months, it could take three months, it could take four months. But soon, the GBTC shares are going to run up, are going to run out. And they're not going to trade at a discount to net asset value anymore. And then the buying will return into the main Bitcoin market and the prices will start going up again. Right. And I mean, the, the, the GBTC um, premium, if we go back to the beginning of the year, was, was 20 to 30 percent above the Bitcoin price. Um, Even up to 40 percent. Even up, up to 40 percent. Yeah. I mean, there's good reason for that. So one is 
if you buy GBTC, if you're an institution, just put yourself in the in the pound seat of a pension fund manager. And you can either go and buy real Bitcoin, but then he has to work out how to insure them and how to store them. And if he loses the private keys or if he doesn't work out how to store the private keys, he's in big trouble because those Bitcoin are gone. Or he can just pay GBTC 2 or 3% a year. And they take care of everything and he's totally and fully insured. It's a no-brainer for the big Wall Street institutions to be buying GBTC versus buying actual Bitcoin. And that's what they did. The second thing is that GBTC because it's a share, falls into this American 401k, they call it, which is their equivalent of trading their pension fund money tax-free and only paying a tax at the very, very, very end when they actually redeem their money. I think it's called a 401k. Now, when you buy and sell GBTC in your 401k, you don't pay tax on the earnings that you make then. You only pay it when you actually one day redeem your pension. So the reason for the premium was, A, because because there was much more supply than demand, uh, demand than supply, but also because of the tax saving that the, the biggest market in the world, the Americans were getting in their 401ks. And that's why there was a premium. But now the demand has run out. There's a big, massive overhang. In fact, on Sunday, 41,000 Bitcoin worth of BGT, GBTC, GBTC shares hit the market. And that's going to create even a bigger overhang. So my trade at the moment is to wait and wait for the GBTC uh, uh, unlock, which happens on Sunday. And then I think that the, the discount will drop. And I think it will drop to, to, to a much more like minus 20%. And then to buy up as many GBTC shares as I possibly can. And where, where do you do that? How do you buy that? Is it on the New York Stock Exchange or where? So you can buy uh, GBTC shares. You can buy them on any American trading app so it's an american any trading app that's linked to the u.s stock markets so robin i think robin hood uh interactive brokers charles schwab uh, and i think if there's any south african banks that buy shares for their customers they they probably can buy it so it's really anyone who can buy american shares or shares listed on the american stock markets they can buy gbtc shares okay we're running out of time but i've got a couple of questions i want to run through here quickly um Mirror Trading International, AfriCrypt, these two big scams coming out of South Africa just in the last 12 months, and it's not doing our reputation much good. Are we becoming seen internationally as a nesting ground for crypto scams? Uh, no. Um, to be honest, not many people are looking at those scams. I mean, I was actually in the U.S. when both of those scams broke, and kind of like no one's talking about it. People in the U.S. are very focused on what's happening in the U.S., and they don't really care about the fact that South Africans and South African money got scammed in South Africa. Um, so it's not, I mean, it's not like, wow, don't go to South Africa. There's lots of scammers there. Uh, that said, I think it's very bad for us in South Africa. The reason for that is I think that the regulators who are currently looking to regulate crypto are seeing this and going, wow, we need to put a lot more stringent, tighter regulations because of some bad actors in the space. Uh, I don't know anything about um, the second bunch, the AFRI bunch, but I do remember with Mirror Trading International that it just seemed too good to be true. The returns that they were talking about were better than the returns that any of the top 10 crypto asset managers in the world were getting. And I warned many, many, many people to say, stay away from this because it's a scam. It's, it, it cannot be. And I was, you know, I was, unfortunately, I was vindicated. Unfortunately, I was proven right, which is, which is you know, sadly, uh, a lot of people lost money there. A lot of people that I know also lost money there. Um, I guess... You know, if you're going to invest in anything that's crypto related, then make sure you invest with a 
the best, the most reputable, and do your homework. If it seems too good to be true, it usually is too good to be true. Yeah, AfriCrypt was pretty much the same, um, slightly different, but uh, yeah, they were offering returns which you just couldn't get anywhere else. And of course, uh, that also seems to have been, well, it was a hack. It was a slightly different ending there, or an, an alleged hack. Let, let me put it at, at, that way. Time will tell whether it was a hack. Remember, with blockchain, you can track the flow of money forever and ever and ever. What most people don't understand or don't know about blockchain is that every single transaction is recorded transparently for everyone to see forever. So it's not like cash money where you can take the cash and once it's passed hands once or twice, you'll never see it again. Here, even in 10 years, we'll be able to follow every single flow of that Bitcoin. So in time, we will see where these Bitcoin that were in inverted commas, hacked. We will see where they get redeemed, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be able to track it back. Um, it, you know, the, one of the guys in the FBI said in an interview, he said something like, we love it when criminals use Bitcoin because it gives us a clear trail of everything, you know? And that's exactly what's going to happen here. That's exactly what's going to happen here. Eventually, these guys are going to get caught because someone's going to follow the flow of money. Now, we can only hope that the government here takes serious action and put these people behind bars as and when they're caught and actually spend the resources to prove to the rest of the world that South Africa is a very strong, um, a very strong country when it comes to regulation. And if the government can do that, then we may be able to, to position ourselves as a crypto heaven. All right. I mean, there, there is a call for regulation. You've already mentioned that. And the regulators might be, you know, doing a bit of a knee jerk when they see this kind of thing going on. My God, you know, we've got to do something to protect our reputation. So we'll, we'll go in hard. Now, most of the white hats in the space, they welcome regulation. The, the exchanges want it. They do want some separation so that you don't get a mirror trading, uh, you know, parading itself off of the, the good work that other people have done or destroying the reputation that other people have put into the space. But what, what do you see? Is there a danger that we become, you know, overregulated as a result of this? I think that if you look historically at the South African regulators, the South African regulators are generally slow, but fair. So they don't regulate very quickly, and you can see that with crypto, but they don't over-regulate. So many states in the US and China have over-regulated and they've killed the innovation, and I don't think that South Africa is going to do that. I think South African regulators have shown their approach uh, in, terms of, in terms of regulation. I think what we need to see more of, and that's, I think this is a generally a South African thing, is enforcement of regulation. So, you know, there is regulation against what happened at mirror trading, but now we want to see that the regulation is enforced and people are taken to task. I think where we're lacking is not regulation. I think the South African regulators are usually quite responsible. But it's the enforcement where we always fall short. But I think that's also changing. If, I, if I, I've been out of the country for two years, and when I look back in this country, it's a different country from when I left. This country, this government uh, does enforce. This government is strategic. This government is making things happen. Uh, all, albeit much slower than people wanted it to happen, uh, but things are happening. In fact, you know, Jacob Zuma is in prison right now. If anybody needs a sign that, that times are changing in South Africa, well, Jacob Zuma is in prison. So, you know, I think that I think South Africa could be a crypto heaven, and I think the regulators are doing the right thing by taking their time and letting the industry develop, and then let's wait and see what they put in. They also had a lot of sandboxes with industry to work out the regulation, which is which, and I attended some of those, and they were fantastic. So I think the regulators are actually on the right track here. 
Final, uh, but actually two questions. Has Bitcoin gone mainstream? We've seen phenomenal U-turns by the likes of JP Morgan and other banks, Bank of America. They all seem to have crypto analysts these days. What's going on here? So we are witnessing right now, right now witnessing Bitcoin going mainstream. And it's a very exciting time because if you were around in 2017 and 2016 like I was, and you remember the days when Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, said, that Bitcoin is a fraud. And he actually said that if any trader in JP Morgan trades Bitcoin, they will be fired. And that's a very different tune from what they're seeing today, where the banks are actually, you know, fighting each other and competing with each other to try and position themselves as the number one Bitcoin bank and to introduce it to their wealthy clients. And, and you know, it's going to continue to flow down. So we are witnessing the beginning of, of Bitcoin going mainstream and it is going mainstream now. And why that's so exciting is because if you understand the rest of the crypto market, you understand that, you know, if Bitcoin's going mainstream, wait until Ethereum goes mainstream and wait until Chainlink goes mainstream and wait until Cardano goes mainstream. So as a retail crypto investor, if you've dipped your toes in and you've got these things, just hold on tight and wait for the banks to do their thing and to get adoption of, of, the, of crypto assets. Because it's a natural cycle for investors to start off with Bitcoin to get very excited because once they finally understand Bitcoin, they get super excited. And then they start learning about the alternative assets, the altcoins, which is Ethereum. And then they go down the table to Chainlink and to Cardano and to Polkadot and to Kusama and to all these amazing tokens, which all do amazing things and are all building network effect. And when that happens, then if you're a retail investor, you've actually beaten the banks to it. And the banks will do a marketing job for the same tokens that you're holding today. Right. According to Glassnode research, uh, much of the recent selling pressure came from Bitcoin newcomers. These are people who entered the market in the course of this year or in the, in the, the dying months of last year. Now, older Bitcoin hands like yourself have learned to sit through these crazy downturns. If you were to project five years into the future, where do you see cryptos in terms of the impact they'll have on our lives? Not so much. I'm not so much asking about price, um, although you might want to comment on that. But how are these going to change our lives very briefly? Let's put the price discussion aside. And the reason why I say let's put the price discussion aside is because naturally, if these things make a real impact in the world, then they will increase your price. I think we, we can both agree on that. So let's for one second forget about price. Blockchain is disrupting many, many, many industries. And the, and the rate of disruption that's happening is, 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 is insane. It's so fast. I've never seen something disrupt industries so fast. You've watched Bitcoin disrupt gold as a store of value. Now, bear in mind that gold has been a store of value for hundreds of years. And you've watched Bitcoin get to 10% of gold's market cap in a matter of a year in terms of since the narrative became a digital store of value or digital gold. Um, and it's, it's growing very, very fast. In fact, there was a period last year where JP Morgan said that they tracked outflows from the GLD um, uh, ETF, which is the biggest gold ETF. And they track the money going directly back into the Bitcoin, into, into Grayscale Trust. So Bitcoin has already disrupted gold. Ethereum, through decentralized finance, uh, is disrupting, for one, banking. Uh, there's $100 billion or, so, or, or, or thereabout in this decentralized finance, which we call DeFi, which is effectively banking without the banks. Uh, also on Ethereum, you have this new category called NFTs or non-fungible tokens which are digital collectible certificates or digital collectible assets. And they are disrupting many, many, many industries in the world. And the list goes on and on and on. So I think in five years, uh, I think 
blockchain is going to be intertwined into every aspect of our lives, of our digital lives. And I don't think that we're going to know that we're using blockchain. Like when we talk about the internet today, no one actually talks about the fact that you're using the internet. It's just social media. And social media is built on top of the internet. So I think that in five years, blockchain is going to be used by us in many, many, many different ways. And we're not even going to talk about the fact that we're using blockchain or not even going to know that we're using blockchain. It doesn't really matter. Wow. Fantastic. We're going to leave it there, Ran. That was Ran Neuner. Now, just to, to wrap up here, Ran will be debating David, the redoubtable David Shapiro, at the Cryptocurrency Investment Conference on August the 4th. And uh, you can register for that. It's going to be a morning of some fascinating discussions. But the, the, the topic that they're going to be debating is should we be investing in cryptocurrency? And Ran, I think you've kind of outlined some very interesting takes on all of this. And I'm looking forward to that debate. Of course, I'm, I'm going to be moderating that, uh, that conference, and I look forward to moderating that debate as well. But I really want to thank you so much for coming on to MoneyWeb Crypto and, and sharing those views. And um, we look forward to catching up with you again on August the 4th. Well, I think there's no debate on August the 4th. That the, there's no debate that you should be investing in crypto assets. And I, I, I hope, and I'm sure that David Shapiro will see that by the end of the discussion. Uh, I also <laughs> think that it's been so much fun here today that, Anytime that you guys want to do it again, let's do it. I just think that there's so much to talk about when it comes to crypto. Uh, I think that I, I can um, uh, share a lot of uh, what I've been through with your viewers and listeners. So anytime that you guys want to do it, let's do it again. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, okay. I, and then here's a topic for our next podcast is like, how do you construct uh, your crypto portfolio responsibly? And maybe we can you know, talk around some of the issues there. You did touch on it today, um, but I'd like to pursue that a little bit further. We should do that. I mean, there was an article written about me in Business Insider, which was published like two or three days ago. And um, yeah, we should. We must definitely do that. Let, let's help people build a crypto portfolio. You let me know when. I'm, I'm around and I'm available. Thank you so much, Ran. Have a good day. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.